Welcome to episode 151 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux canoes. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a lot of great news to get to. We'll first check out some hardware news as pre-orders are now available for the Framework Modular Laptop and System76's new keyboard. KDE announced the beta release for Plasma 5.22, and I personally have given it a test run so already and can easily say that I am very excited about this release. Then we'll jump to the Linux mobile market to check out the latest release of Ubuntu Touch with OTA 17. And we've got some updates for the JingPad A1 Linux tablet. Later in the show, we've got an update for the Audacity telemetry topic we discussed last week. And we'll check out some Wi-Fi security flaws that were revealed this week. So there's that. Well, all that and so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. First in the show this week, we're going to talk about some hardware news. And first up, we're going to talk about the Framework Modular Laptop. So the Framework Laptop is really, really interesting because it has a it basically it's, it allows you to m change out a lot of things for this laptop. Now there are many laptops that have the ability to replace the battery, and you know you could swap out the RAM and that sort of stuff. But this laptop is really interesting because it allows you to swap out pretty much every component because they even have these uh, expansion card system, which is like modules that you can have different connectors. So you could have a USB type C, or you can have other modules like an HDMI port and the various different things you can swap in and out, which is really cool as a concept for the laptop. And also there have been other laptops in the past that had a modular aspect, but they were kind of bulky and you could even arguably call them monstrosities in terms of like their actual visual appeal. But this one is a nice like ultrabook style laptop, which is really, really cool. And they have announced the pre-orders and listed off different models that you can get. So they have the base model, the performance model, and the professional model. Now the base model comes in at $999. The performance model is $1399. And the professional model is $1999. So we're going to talk about the, some specs related to each model, but there is also a DIY edition that is going to come up in a bit. So the base model is an i5-1135G7 processor with 8 megabytes of cache up to 4.20 gigahertz boost clock. It has 8 gigabytes of RAM for DDR4 RAM, a 256 gigabytes NVMe SSD storage, uh, also Wi-Fi 6 support, and it comes with Windows 10. Well, they all come with Windows 10 technically, except for the DIY option. You can put whatever you want on that. But they do say that we prioritize Linux support from the outset and have been testing against both Ubuntu LTS and Fedora. We'll be pu publishing detailed compatibility installation guides for common distributions. In general, we expect everything to work automatically except for maybe the fingerprint reader, which may take more effort in the near term. So. They do say that they have a lot of effort into making compatibility for Linux, though it does come with Windows by default. Uh, there's a little bit of an issue for me in that sense because with it by default, that means you're probably paying a licensing fee for Windows. But what if I wanted the base model without Windows on it? Shouldn't there be a little bit cheaper in that case? I don't, that doesn't seem to be an option. So if you want to get the non-Windows edition, you have to get the DIY. But, you know, 
We'll get to that in a second. So the performance model has a 1399 price tag with i7 1165G7, 12 megabytes of cache, up to 4.7 gigahertz boost clock, 16 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM, 512 NVMe SSD storage, Wi-Fi 6 support. Uh, they all have Wi-Fi 6 support, but Wi-Fi 6 V Pro is in the Professional Edition, which comes in at $19.99. And it has a i7-1185G7, 12 megabytes of cache, up to 4.8 gigahertz uh, boost clock, 32 gigabytes of, of DDR4 RAM, and 1 terabyte NVMe SSD storage. Now, in the DIY Edition, this comes in at $749 for the bare-bones configuration, and this is really interesting because they say it's the only high-performance notebook you can customize and assemble yourself from a kit of modules. You can choose from a range of memory, storage, Wi-Fi, and even operating system options. This is a really interesting laptop. Uh, it has a lot of pros. It has some cons too. We'll get to those in a second. But the pros are it has uh, two SODIMM memory slots, which is nice so that you can have really uh, powerful expansion. It also has a 3 by 2 aspect ratio screen, which is actually pretty good because you know back in the day 3 by 2 or 4 by 3 were not typically that good of a screen however this is a, a 2k based 3 by 2 which is great because a 3 by 2 in a 1080p style is not ideal but for 2k or higher 3 by 2 aspect ratio provides a lot of value uh, i've talked about this on a previous episode of hardware addicts i'll have that linked in the show notes if you want more details about why aspect ratios are important and why i am a big fan of the 3 by 2 uh, I'll have that linked in the show notes if you are interested about that. Uh, and also it comes with various different uh, expansion card options for the DIY and just in general. So you can get USB-C, USB-A, DisplayPort, HDMI, micro SD. Uh, there's also storage expansion packs for 250 gigabytes or one terabyte. And now I'll have a list of uh, different uh, specs, that the actual prices for each of these cards listed in the show notes if you want to check that out. Uh, but it is quite interesting. And the, there's a variety of other expansion cards in development. They say that including a high-end headphone amps, uh, Arduino-compatible microcontrollers, and more. And they're also opening the spec and sharing reference designs to enable partners in the community to help grow the expansion card ecosystem. Now, there are some cons still in here. And for example, uh, one, one person on Reddit said that it doesn't have core boot and that they don't, they're disappointed by that. And depending on your preference, I can understand whether you be pro, you consider that a con, I mean. Uh, but there's also no AMD option. Hopefully in the future, there will be an option for AMD because that would be fantastic because the only thing that's missing from this kind of laptop is the AMD part that I want. Uh, but everything else sounds fantastic. And they were also asked on Reddit, uh, why were they making this product? What, uh, Because la laptops these days are powerful enough to not need to be replacing parts all the time and that sort of stuff. And their responses are quite interesting. They say, there are a lot of common pain points that we aim to solve with modularity and repairability. Being able to upgrade storage if you're getting full. Being able to add more RAM if you're using a new set of applications that needs more uh, you know, he heavy memory usage. Uh, not needing to buy all the memory and storage all at once up front in the initial purchase, but being able to upgrade over time like a desktop PC, making it easy to replace the battery since worn out batteries are something we've all experienced, and letting users have exactly the ports they want and be able to change them as they need to. 
Now, these are really great reasons, and I think that this concept is fantastic. And showing the different, uh, the sh showing the prototypes of these laptops, it, it looks like there's a lot of potential here. And I, I just, I can't wait to try it out. Hopefully, I'll be able to get a pre-order. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, but this, it looks really, really cool. And if you're interested in checking out the pre-order for the Framework Modular Laptop, I'll have links for you to do that in the show notes. Up next in the show, System76 has announced the launch of the launch keyboard. They say that it is engineered to be comfortable, fully customizable, and make your workflow more efficient. So this is really interesting because this is a mechanical keyboard uh, and has a lot of interesting features that I'm very curious to try out, such as the split spacebar, as well as the ability to easily remap the keys using their own uh, custom configuration tool, uh, and also uh, being able to have multiple multiple layers. That's just really nice for customization and personalization. And you may be wondering, what's so special about a mechanical keyboard? Well, let me give you a story. So a few years ago, I was wondering the exact same thing. I've been using a mechanical keyboard now for a little while, uh, and I can say with confidence that I will never go back to a non-mechanical keyboard. For years, I thought it was just kind of like a hipster thing that you would want to have this fancy keyboard versus like a basic $10 keyboard. You can get it whatever store you want to. Uh, and I've been using those, you know, crummy keyboards or cheap keyboards for most of my computing life. And I just never really understood the value. But that's really just because I had never taken the leap into getting one of them because they tend to be relatively high priced to get a keyboard. So they typically range from $100 to $300 or even more, depending on which one you're getting. Uh, and the story uh, goes basically along like this. One faithful day in my blissful ignorance, I met someone who would later reveal themselves to be my tech guide through the universe, who enlightened me to the wonders of a mechanical keyboard. That person is Ryan, or aka Das Geek, from the podcast Hardware Addicts on the Destination Linux Network. He showed me the error of my ways, and I became a, a mechanical keyboard advocate rather quickly. It just a matter of minutes of using a mechanical keyboard, I started to understand the value and that they bring. And also it made it more enjoyable to type and just made it type me type faster because of the just the smoothness of using a mechanical keyboard. That's not necessarily related to this particular keyboard from System 86. That's just any mechanical keyboard. I think that they are very, uh, very useful and worth the price. Now, depending on the price that they come in and which keyboard configuration you get, that could be, you know, you could choose whether you think it's worth it or not. But in this case, the System76 uh, launch keyboard has a really interesting features. For example, the split spacebar, which is a design for the spacebar that makes it possible to move alternate keys into this split this space rather than having this, uh, you know, a, like typically they're just really long spacebars. However, I personally just use one thumb when I'm use, hitting the spacebar, so I don't really need to have that big of a spacebar. So the idea of a split spacebar is really interesting because you could replace it with something that's more useful like a function key or a backspace key or a shift key or something like that to just make it easier to do certain stuff. And I guess you could do it with any key, but I don't know. Uh, those things seem to be the most useful, but whatever you wanna do if you wanna change it. And they also have a keyboard configurator application 
that System76 made to make it possible to customize and remap the keys and that sort of stuff. And also it has multiple layers, so you can have up to four layers of different keys changing what those keys do based on like hit, holding the function function key down and hitting the, some some key or you know different layers that you can activate. It's really, really cool. I like that. And also, all your changes are going to be stored in the keyboard's firmware, which means that once you make a change, no matter whether you have an application for it or not configured on your, your desktop or your laptop or whatever you connect it to, you will always have the customizations that you have made, which is fantastic. Anytime there's any kind of customization for a keyboard, they should always have the firmware built into it. Some of them don't, which is unfortunate, but um, this one does, so that's nice. Now there's also some really interesting aspects they did with this key this uh, this keyboard in the they made a USB hub built into it. So a lot of keyboards do have an additional USB uh, port like for example the keyboard I use does have an external port that you can, you know, kind of use as a hub but it's only one port. And this one has up to four ports. So it has two USB type C ports and two USB type A ports. Uh, for those who are familiar, the type A means the standard regular USB port. So there you go. Uh, this is really, really interesting. And I, I think that this has uh, a lot of potential for a keyboard. Now, uh, most importantly though, is the LEDs, the RGB factor, because they're better RGB some LEDs. And in this case, there are. The launch keyboard comes with customizable LEDs equipped with multiple styles and patterns, so you can cycle through a large RGB color spectrum. So it, it, if you don't know, this, there's actually like RGB gives you at least an additional five frames per second of any game you play. Now, this is based on studies that I just made up, but, you know, now this keyboard, in addition to having all these great features, it also is 100% open source because... Of course, System76 has been promoters of open source for many years, so it's no surprise that the launch keyboard is fully open source product. While it doesn't come as a surprise from System76, it is fantastic that they are releasing the, divine the design files for the launch keyboard, so anyone is able to view or learn from them or even modify them if they want to. And System76 has also released the code for the software configuration application, uh, and the firmware is based on open source QMK firmware. So QMK is very, uh, very popular thing for customizing a mechanical keyboard. So it's really nice that they have that built into it. There are some issues that I have with this uh, particular keyboard. Now that's not necessarily that it's a bad keyboard. It's just the the price is a little high. It's two hundred and eighty five dollars USD to get this this keyboard. And while it is very interesting, and I am uh, curious to try it out myself. Uh, the price is a little bit steep for me, uh, especially because it doesn't come with a numpad. Now, I know some people prefer that style of keyboard to not have a numpad, but personally, I like the grid style keys that are offered by a numpad. I use them all the time for a variety of reasons, obviously to type in numbers, but anytime I'm doing anything that requires math, I use the, num the numpad almost exclusively, as well as the uh, numpad enter key, I use that probably more than the regular enter key. I don't really know why, but I use it all the time. Uh, and on, in addition to that, if there was a numpad, it would mean that the combination with the four layers would be an additional 68 keys for customizations. And for me, the more keys, the better. So I kind of a little bit disappointing that there's not a numpad, but I also get not everybody wants a numpad. I think it is very cool that they use standard keycaps to make it easy to replace and customize the look of the keyboard as well. 
But if I were to pick up one of these keyboards, I would need to get some additional keycaps because I don't really like the aesthetic of this keyboard. So those are a couple of issues. And I know that they're kind of nitpicky in terms of like, you know, the not having a numpad or, you know, the, the colors of the keys are not really what I like. And I would probably have to replace them all. But overall, I do think it is a, you know, interesting keyboard. And if you are interested in checking it out, I'll have links and also technical specs provided in the show notes. So there you go. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about KDE Plasma. For those who are not familiar with this show or my content, I'm a very big fan of KDE and KDE Plasma specifically. Uh, and actually, pretty much everything KDE makes, I love using their stuff. It's quite good. So uh, I did test out this latest beta release because uh, 5.22 beta is out. Well, it's actually numbered 5.21.90, but it's essentially the same thing. So KDE Plasma 5.22 beta is uh, available for testing on uh, Kubuntu 21.04 with a beta PPA that you can install. Also, there's a copper option for Fedora 34 or the Fedora Rawhide has support for that. Also, uh, some work into OpenSUSE to have that available in the uh, testing uh, aspects. Now, I have tested uh, with the Kubuntu 21.04 beta PPA just because I wanted to try out uh, how the, you know, the back, the not necessarily backporting, but the testing of upgrading through that PPA just to see how it worked. And it was quite nice. Let's do the disclaimer first because. This is beta software, and it is released for testing purposes. You are advised to not use KDE Plasma 5.22 beta in a production environment or as your daily desktop. If you do install Plasma 5.22 beta, you must be prepared to encounter and report to the creators bugs that may interfere with your day-to-day -day use of your computer. All right, now that's out of the way. So let's talk about the highlights of this release. Now that we're gonna we're not gonna dive in super deep. We will when we get to the final release, which will be happening in June. So when we get to that, I will be giving more details about all the things that are happening. But just want to give a few highlights. So the some general plasma highlights are the plasma system monitor is now replacing K Sysguard. And now K Sysguard has been a really good system monitor, but plasma system monitor is way better. There's a, it looks better. It's more modern. It also has some extra features that KSysGuard doesn't. Like you can, you can edit pages of how the data is displayed and what data is displayed and all sorts of stuff. Really cool. There's also a new adaptive panel transparency feature, which makes it possible to have uh, transparent panels. Then when you have maximized windows to turn them, turn off the transparency to make it opaque. You can also make it always transparent or always opaque if you want to. So whatever. Uh, and there's also some improvements to the usability of the new kickoff menu that was re released in 521, which is a really nice menu, by the way. And another big improvement is the Wayland support. There's a lot of improvements for the Wayland support in KDE Plasma, which is fantastic to see. And there's also some specifics that I want to talk about, like the ability to have uh, activities support inside of Wayland, as well as some improvements to the global menu applet in Wayland. Now, let's move on to the next thing I want to talk about, which is the system settings, because the app now opens to a new quick settings like homepage that shows you the most commonly frequently changed settings, like being able to change the wallpaper or change, activating a global dark theme or having a double click versus single click and all, a bunch of stuff like that. It's really nice to see uh, that being set up 
in the system settings uh, as the you know the first thing you see when you open it. And you also can now easily in, uh, enable or disable offline updates directly on your system settings, depending on which which one your distro goes with it. So if your distro doesn't have offline updates by default, you can turn it on or vice versa, which is really cool. They've also improved some accessibility in the keyboard navigation inside of system settings, which is nice. Uh, there's also something else I wanted to talk about. Now, if you're not, you might not be familiar that uh, KDE Plasma has a clipboard manager and uh, that has clipboard history and that sort of stuff. So you can, you know, keep track of what you've copied and that you can actually customize it to be as many entries as you want to. I think by default it's seven, uh, although I, I, I jack it up by a lot. So I like to have, you know, as many. Uh, actually, I think I have like 50 or something, but I've heard people go up to like 900 just because I, I wonder what that looks like in the UI. That's got to be kind of awkward. Anyway, so the reason I'm bringing that up is because by default, they're going to be having a new shortcut available in 522 for the, which will be meta V, like, you know, control V for pasting. It's meta V for activating the uh, drop, the pop up for your clipboard monitor or clipboard manager. Now, if you've not tried the clipboard manager in KDE Plasma, you should definitely check it out. And if you don't have KDE Plasma, but are interested in a clipboard manager in general, there are quite a few of those. Uh, and I'll have some links in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, but there's a lot more stuff that's in this latest release, uh, like stuff for updates to KRunner and KWIN window manager and notification system and all sorts of stuff. We'll go into much more depth when the final release happens, which is expected to be on June 8th. But for now, you can check out the links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. You can use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps. It has support for multiple programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. With the app platform, you get high scalability and zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or your GitLab repository to the app platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you, such as handling the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies, so you can push code to production in just a few clicks. You can also secure your apps automatically with the app platform because they create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates for you and also protect your apps against DDoS attacks. With the app platform, you can run code with little to no customization because it uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs those containers on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have some not-so-fun news, and that is the Frag Attacks security vulnerabilities collection against uh, that basically affect pretty much most, if not all, Wi-Fi devices. So the frag attacks researchers say an adversary that is within range of a victim's Wi-Fi network can abuse these vulnerabilities to steal user information or attack devices. Three of the discovered vulnerabilities are design flaws in the Wi-Fi standard and therefore affect most devices. 
They also found several other vulnerabilities that are caused by widespread programming mistakes in Wi-Fi products. So the Wi-Fi security from WEP or WP through WPA3 are believed to be all impacted. This means that several of the newly discovered design flaws have been a part of Wi-Fi since 1997. And uh, fortunately, though, the design flaws are hard to abuse because doing so requires user interaction or is only possible when using uncommon network settings. On the other hand, though, the programming mistakes in Wi-Fi products are a big concern since several of them are trivial, trivial to exploit. So... Really quick, the uh, frag attacks encompasses uh, plain text injection vulnerabilities, the frame aggregation feature of Wi-Fi potentially leading to an uh, aggregation attack. There's also the frame fragmentation feature of Wi-Fi leading to a possible mixed key attack, and the Wi-Fi frame fragmentation feature being exploited for a possible fragment cache attack. So there's a lot of details. I'll have a bunch of links in the show notes if you want to check it out more details, but or like the, the whole breakdown of how these different attacks work. Uh, but just to know that there are many CVEs that were issued for this uh, frag attacks research, but you know, it's bad, but how bad is it? Well, they said that experiments indicate that every Wi-Fi product is affected by at least one vulnerability and that most products are affected by several vulnerabilities. So does this mean that every Wi-Fi device is trivial to attack now? Well, they say that the design issues are on their own tedious to exploit in practice. Unfortunately, some of the implementation vulnerabilities are common and trivial to exploit. Additionally, by combining the design issues with certain implementation issues, the resulting attacks can be more serious. This means that impact of our findings depends on the specific target. Your vendor can inform you what the precise impact is for specific devices, but in other words, for some devices, the impact is minor, while others, it can be disastrous. So, that's fun, right? Now, what's interesting about this is that they were kind of surprised by the discovery of these vulnerabilities, because these are the same people who discovered the crack attacks a few years ago, 2017, I believe. And they said that the defenses against crack were proven very secure, and the latest WP3 security specifications have improved because of these uh, finding the crack attacks. So they were kind of surprised when they had found these particular sets for the uh, frag attacks. So uh, to protect users, though, they said that they have uh, security updates were prepared during ni a nine-month-long coordinated disclosure that was supervised by the Wi-Fi Alliance and the ICASI, or Akazi. I don't know how you're supposed to say that, but I kind of want it to be that way. Anyway, if updates for your device are not available yet, you can mitigate some of the attacks, not by, not all of them, but some of them, by assuring that websites you use are using HTTPS and by assuring that your device has received um, all the official available updates. So if a website is configured with HTTPS, you should be good to go, but some websites don't have HTTPS on all of the sections, like all subdomains which is kind of problematic. So it does matter if you know, just because you go to one and it has HTTPS doesn't mean it always does. So you'd need to be careful when you input any kind of data. But some websites also have this thing called HSTS, which is a, a configuration that makes it required to have HTTPS. But only about 20% of websites these days have that activated. So you still need to be very uh, aware and very attentive. Now, there are some browsers that do warn users 
when you're on a website that doesn't have HTTPS. In fact, Firefox, when you go to a login form or any kind of form and it, and you, it doesn't have HTTPS, it will like warn you right in the form itself, which is really nice. Now, other browsers have it like an identifier in the address bar and that sort of thing, which is really good to have. But I do like the fact that Firefox is like very upfront about it right in the form itself. So that's cool. But just pay attention to the kind of websites you're going to because now most websites do use HTTPS, like the vast majority do, and also a lot of uh, most apps do as well. Uh, so you're not really that. Uh, it's not that big of an issue if you're just going through HTTPS. In fact, they say that these days a lot of websites and apps use HTTPS to encrypt data. When using HTTPS, an adversary cannot see the data you are transmitting even when you are connected to an open Wi-Fi network. This also means that you can safely use open Wi-Fi hotspots as long as you keep your devices up to date and as long as you assure that websites are using HTTPS. Unfortunately, not all websites require the usage of HTTPS, so those could be re uh, remain vulnerable to possible attacks. Now, this does create some questions about like whether or not uh, having a VPN would be good to have on an open Wi-Fi hotspot. Now, absolutely, a VPN would be beneficial. Don't use an open Wi-Fi network just in general. Uh, if you're going to use an open Wi-Fi network, be sure to have a VPN attached to it. I avoid them as much as possible, but if you're going to do it, you should have a VPN uh, making it possible to have at least some extra level of, of privacy and security in on top of that. But they say, will using a VPN prevent attacks? Well, it can prevent attacks where adv ad the adv adversary is trying to exfiltrate data, but it will not prevent an adversary from bypassing your router's NAT or firewall to directly attack the device. So there is some, some nuance there. It's better to have as much security as possible while having a still a relative amount of convenience. So I do think that if you're going to use an open Wi-Fi network, use a VPN too. Very important. Anyway, if you want to check out if your devices are vulnerable to this, uh, these issues, uh, they have provided testing images that you can put on a USB drive. Now, they also made it possible to install these tools in your existing computer with some driver updates and stuff like that, or in a VM if you want to do that. But they say that the best results, uh, for the best results, they recommend the USB, uh, live USB option. So uh, check that out instead if you want to do some testing. Now, there are a lot of issues with this, but it's not super dire, but it is pretty bad. But as long as you're, you know, keeping keeping aware of whether you're using HTTPS or not uh, and before you input any kind of data, and also if you're using a VPN on an open Wi-Fi network, you're probably okay. But you still need to make sure that your your home or your 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 uh, company network is as secure as possible. So you need to make sure you're up to date with all of your firmware and that sort of stuff because this uh, this is a pretty is a pretty um, unfortunate level of uh, vulnerabilities. So, if you'd like to learn more, links in the show notes. Up next in the mobile section of this episode, we're going to talk about Ubuntu Touch OTA 17 from the UbiPorts team. So, this is not a huge release as they are currently focused on migrating the base to Ubuntu 2004 from the current 1604 base, but there are a few things that I wanted to highlight. So, for example, there's new devices, the Xiaomi Redmi Note 7 Pro, as well as the Xiaomi Redmi uh, 3S, 3X, and 3SP 
have been added. There have also been a lot of other devices that are supported on the OTA 17, uh, up to uh, 28 devices, I believe. So uh, LG Nexus 5, the OnePlus One, the Fairphone 2, as well as uh, Sony Xperia X and XZ, and also some improvements to the OnePlus 3 and, and 3T uh, phones have seen improvements. Uh, and also Ubuntu Touch now supports NFC hardware. In most devices running the Android 9 hardware compatibility, which is just really cool. So the Pixel 3a or the Volaphone, those have support for NFC. And NFC is a really cool uh, piece of technology that makes it so. If you're not if you're not familiar with it, it's it's kind of it's kind of like a really close range uh, transfer protocol. So it allows you to have a hardware chip and also NFC tags or NFC of another another device or whatever, anything that supports sending out the NFC uh, signal or protocol, but it's also very, very short range. You know, like Bluetooth has a range of about 20 feet or so, and uh, NFC has a range of about an inch, maybe. So uh, it's really nice to have, uh, uh, for example, when I used to use NFC all the time, uh, I would have like these tags that were, uh, you know, just strewn around places that whenever I hover my phone over the tag, it would do something such as, you know, uh, do some home automation stuff with it and that sort of thing. Or it could be activating something on your phone, like through Tasker or some kind of other automation. Really cool abilities that you can do with NFC. So it's really nice to see that NFC is being supported on Ubuntu Touch now. That is awesome. So it also gives support for app developers to the ability to read and write to NFC tags, as well as even communicate with other devices using the protocol. And in this uh, this update for OTA 17, they've also updated Mir from 1.2.0 to 1.8.1. And they say that the support for it has been uh, quite nicely and nice stable for this release. Uh, and for those who are not aware, yes, Mir deal still does exist. So there's that. Uh, it actually works as a compositor on top of Wayland now, so that's really nice. Uh, I think Mir has a lot of potential, and I think uh, some DEs have already started to use Mir uh, for their support of Wayland, and I think others should consider that as well, because consolidating effort is a good idea. Think about it. Also, they have updates to the cameras, because they, they've made some improvements and bug fixes for the flash, the zoom, rotation, also focus of different devices and that sort of thing. And there's been a lot more as well. If you want to check out the full details of the Ubuntu Touch OTA 17 release, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the updates for the JingPad A1. This is a Linux tablet, and we've got some updates about the uh, different specifications of the tablet, as well as some more information about the Indiegogo campaign and a variety of other things. So let's just jump into it. So the specs, we have now know what the CPU is. It is a Unisoc Tiger T7510 processor, which is an octa-core Cortex-A75-A55 processor. Right off the tongue, just rolls right off the tongue. Giga, six gigabytes of, of RAM. It has 128 gigabytes of storage, and it is a 11-inch AMOLED display with 2K resolution at 2368 by 1728. And this is also a 4 by 3 aspect ratio, which is an interesting choice for a tablet like this. Uh, it has a capacitive touchscreen. It has a 109% NTSC color gamut and 350 nits brightness for the display. It has uh, two cameras on it, one a 16-megapixel rear camera, one 8-megapixel front-facing camera. For I mean, I would rather use like an actual camera or my phone rather than a giant uh, 
device for a camera, but you know, some people might like that. I don't know. Uh, it has some. It has Bluetooth 5.0. It has dual band Wi-Fi. It has uh, actually. There's going to be the def- the first version of it's going to have a Wi-Fi only, but they're also going to have one that has a 4G slash 5G modem. Now they haven't said like what countries are going to be supported by this this modem, but they said that they will be providing a list in June about which countries will be supported. So it has an 8,000 milliamp hour battery. It has a USB Type C, which is nice because every device these days should come with a USB Type C. Uh, and it also is coming with a charger. Now that is rare for some reason these days to come with a charger. I don't know why, but you know, well, I do know why Apple created this really awful fad of not using, char- not providing chargers. But anyway, moving on, I'll just go into a rant. Uh, rant if I do, if I t- keep talking about that. So let's move on and talk about this add-on that they have. They're having a a keyboard add-on, which has a built-in touchpad. It's a nice-looking add-on for the the keyboard. Uh, It is kind of expensive, though, because it's coming in at uh, $200 uh, retail. And they said that I think that if if you're part of the beta program, you can get it for $149. But uh, I'm not sure if it's exclusive to the beta program or if it's also part of the Indiegogo campaign to get it at that price. Uh, We'll have to look at We'll have to wait and see and find out. Uh, But there's also a stylus. That will come. That says that it has uh, 4,096 levels of pressure sensitivity. Not sure if that's good or bad. Let me know in the comments. Uh, and there's also updates for the Indiegogo campaign. So we now know that the Indiegogo campaign is going to be starting on June 15th. So if you are interested, you can check that out. But if you are interested and also watching the show live or re- very quickly of the edited edition, you can maybe get a part of the beta program. So the beta program has uh, available 100 JingPad A1s for beta testers, and these will be shipped on July 30th, which is about two months prior to the uh, the massive the mass shipping date that they say will be uh, September 27th of 2021. Now, I do like the fact that they're very specific about what's coming on these specific dates because the uh, June 15th is when they're going to be doing the Indiegogo campaign. Then they're going to do the July 30th for the shipping of the beta program and September 27th shipping for the like the whole you know mass shipping. And now, because in contrast for a lot of products, you know, companies will say something like the end of quarter three or something like that. They don't give any specifics. So it's interesting that they give like very specific dates. Anyway, the beta program to join it, you have to pay $19.90. And that will also give you a discount on the uh, Indiegogo campaign. So if you uh, join the beta program, they'll give you a $99 discount. I mean, obviously it's not $99 because it's 99 minus $19.90. I don't, I don't think they give you a discount. I don't think you give the money back for this. I don't know, whatever. Uh, but it makes the price from the four or the for, to 450. So it, it is, if you get the Indiegogo handbook without being a beta program uh, tester, uh, you have the price of 549. If you have the beta program discount, that makes the price 450. So it's really interesting. There's only a hundred uh, Jingpad A1s. So if you want to join the beta program, check the links in the show notes or in the live chat as soon as this topic is over and I'll, you can maybe sign up for it if you want to do that. So this is really interesting because the Jingpad, uh, the Jingpad OS is an operating system made uh, by the Jingling company for the Jingpad. And this is an open source operating system that is uh, based on Linux and it uses KDE Plasma mobile. And this is available on GitHub. I'm not sure how, how much is open, how everything is open, but they do have the operating system itself on GitHub. 
And uh, I do like the fact that it's based on KDE Plasma. When I first saw that, I was really excited, for those who aren't aware, KDE fan. And uh, I was really happy to see that. However, they also said that they're going to be forking the KDE desktop environment for for Plasma Mobile and making their JDE uh, desktop environment. So I was a little bit disappointed by that. But, you know, it's still based on Plasma Mobile, so that's nice. But I was hoping it would be, like, continuously based on it just because I, I like the idea of having a, you know, the specific components built for a tablet being able to be applied to Plasma Mobile in general. But I did contact them and find out if it was a, you know, be based on Plasma Mobile or is it a fork? And they did say it was a fork. So there's that. Now, if you want to check out uh, more information about the JingPad A1, we talked about it in a previous episode, as well as we talked about it on Destination Linux podcast. That was a really interesting conversation. I'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Uh, but if you want to be a part of the beta program, you don't have that much time left because it's it just it actually launched today. So if you want to participate in that, check the links in the show notes. And, or if you're in a live stream, check the links in the live chat. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the you know the best security practice for passwords is to have a different password for every account on every website. Now, this is a fantastic policy, but it's also kind of a painful thing to do because you have to keep up with all of these passwords. But with Bitwarden, they provide you tools that will be able to store all those passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do it. And with the uh, with the password generation, you can do uh, gibberish passwords, which is just like you know a bunch of letters and numbers and different configurations. But they also have the ability to do passphrase generation, which is really nice because you can make really complicated passwords that are actually memorable, so you can remember what they are if you need to. So that is really nice. Uh, so the Bitwarden provides a lot of great tools and they provide them across multiple different types of devices like your web browser, using their mobile apps or desktop application or even on the command line. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. And Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it's also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source software, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And if you want to get started with your account, you can go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. But I think you want to check out their premium account because they have a lot of extra features that are available and the price is less than a dollar per month. That's right. You can get started for just $10 per year with a Bitwarden premium account and get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, a Bitwarden authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Vault Health Reports, which is really helpful because you can check to see if your passwords are have been pwned before and that sort of thing. Very good. And make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. It lets you get peace of mind knowing your passwords and other sensitive data is is safe while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their $10 per year premium account and let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, this is a follow-up for Audacity's uh, telemetry-ish situation that we talked about last week. So if you're not familiar... Last, the quick recap is that last week, Audacity uh, gave, came under fire by the community 
because uh, that people saw that their telemetry was being considered to be added to Audacity in the future. And they, there's a there's a quick note about different ways that they were setting this up. Now, I don't think that telemetry itself is necessarily a bad thing. I was uh, personally bothered by the Google part. Uh, so that is, they, they were going to be using third-party hosts for the data. So Google Analytics and Yandex. And now that I'm not really a fan of. Uh, and, a, and a lot of people in the community also weren't happy about that. Uh, but in general, I think that uh, having telemetry can be very, very valuable to development and growth of software for a variety of reasons. And let's face it, uh, Audacity is a great piece of software, but it does have six magnifying glass buttons in the UI, so it could use some improvements, to say the least. So there's also a case of opt-in versus opt-out. I mean... Uh, I don't think that opt-out necessarily is a bad thing because it does make more sense for for collecting data. Uh, and I, But I understand why people prefer opt-in. And Audacity was doing opt-in, so it should have alleviated some complaints, but I do, but that still doesn't apply to the, the fact that it still is using Google and Yandex. So I get why people are still not happy even with the opt-in. Because, you know... Opt-in makes it possible for people not having to support it, but they also do. Some people do want to support it and send that information, but just not to Google. So there you go. Now they have responded. Uh, Audacity has responded and given some details about what they're going to be doing for the future uh, based on the reaction from the community. So they say that we are dropping the telemetry features proposed in pull request 800, uh, 835 regarding features that require networking. We would like to include error reporting and the ability to for Audacity to check for updates. And they also say that we will self-host all collected data from error reporting and check for updates, removing any need for Google or Yandex analytics. They also go on to say that it is important to stress that we have absolutely no interest in harvesting or selling personal data, and Audacity will always be free and open source. The response to PR835 has brought about a realization that uh, at Muse that the convenience of using Yandex and Google is at odds with the public perception of trustworthiness for these entities so we will be self-hosting instead now this is uh, kind of what i would prefer to have a self-hosting thing but there are people have su suggested that there is a uh, argument to say that self-hosting is not that good but that's a different topic for another day uh, this they, they also say they could continue on to talk about telemetry they they say that we believe our communication mistake contributed to a lot of misunderstanding about our intentions here Telemetry is a practical tool that tells us a lot about how an app is performing or underperforming. Is this new feature being used a lot? Is this button being discovered? That sort of thing. So they go on to say, we assume that making it opt-in would have allay allayed uh, privacy concerns, but since that isn't the case, we are dropping it. In the future, we may want to determine if there are any acceptable alternative solutions that could achieve the same goal. Feedback would be appreciated on this point. In the meantime, I will continue to for you for, to do user testing, interviewing, re reading feedback, and conducting surveys to learn more about how what our users want. And I will happily discuss this in the comments section. So if you want to provide feedback, they are very receptive to that sort of feedback. Now, let's talk about the things that they talked about that they want to continue to keep, and that is error reporting and update checking. So they say that we are currently interested in SQLite errors, uh, application crashes, and non-fatal exceptions. If one of these events is detected, a dialogue will appear that explains the nature of the problem and offers to send an error report to the Audacity developers. This dialogue will contain an option to view the complete error report data before it is sent, 
or crashes and errors, it will send the OS used or crashes, it will send the CPU data, like number of cores, uh, equally prominent buttons to send or don't send for this particular error report, and also the checkboxes offering to remember the user's decision or, and do the same for future error reports without having to ask if you want to choose that. So by default, it's not checked, but if you want to check it for the future, so if you want to say, if there's an error, just continue to send and that sort of stuff if you want. Uh, that, but also the decision for future error reports can be changed in the preferences anytime you want to. Now, moving on to the update checking. When the program starts, Audacity will check whether a new ver newer version of the program is available for download. If there's a new version, the user will be shown a dialog to notify them. There will be an option to disable automatic checking also if you want to, and this can be changed at any time in the preferences. So this is interesting because they, uh, they're detailing exactly what the update checking shows. So like, for example, it will show the IP address, the OS version, and the Audacity version to Audacity. But they say that they will uh, use a self-hosted geolocation database to determine the country the IP address is located in and nothing more. The raw IP address will not be stored or logged, but we will store and log a non-reversible hash of the IP address to improve the accuracy of daily statistics. The server is located within the EU to comply with the GDPR. So it seems like they're kind of really addressing all of the issues that people are had a, had a problem with. Now, again, I do think that telemetry has a valid place because there is a lot of, of there's a lot of value that they can offer by knowing what how people are using the application, knowing how many people are using the application, and what kind of hardware they're using it on, and what operating system they're using it on. Are there more Windows users than Linux users? Why are there more Linux users than Mac users? Like that kind of thing is a very interesting thing to know in terms of what you're doing with the development of the software. So telemetry isn't necessarily bad. So I, but I'd still understand why people didn't like the whole Google Yandex connection. Uh, and that's fair enough. I wasn't a fan of that either. But with the self hosted aspect, I think it, it would be okay for them to have telemetry as long as they're doing it in the the way that, you know, it's opt-in. Actually, I'm okay with opt-out too, but for them, a lot of people don't want that. But opt-in and having self-hosted, I think that's kind of like the best of both worlds. You're providing the choice for the user, and you're also, you know, having the, the data not going to a third party uh, in that sense. So, uh, but I guess an ideal situation for me, though, is Audacity would implement the telemetry while uh, while clearly citing what what is being collected while also for example if there was like a menu item in the ui that let me see exactly what is being sent before it is sent that'd be fantastic they say that for the uh the error reporting that's what it will send it will show you what is being sent but it'd be cool if like at any given time it's tracking the sessions of what it could be sending it and then showing me that i think that would be a, a good way of doing telemetry uh, let me know what you think about this news in the comments below. I'm very curious to see, you know, what your opinions. Is this a good decision? Are you, you know, are you in favor of the fact that they're not doing telemetry in the same way that they were going to? Are, are you disappointed about they're not doing telemetry to learn more about the, op the development and that sort of stuff? Let me know in the comments below. I would love to hear your thoughts. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the latest release of Bodhi Linux. That is Bodhi 6.0. This is a distribution based on Ubuntu. It's based on an LTS, and it has a, the current version specifically is Ubuntu 
Point two LTS is the base for Bode Linux 6. There are several major improvements to this distro's distinctive uh, Moksha desktop, which is a fork of Enlightenment, or specifically uh, Enlightenment 17 or E17, is that's when it was forked. Uh, but there's also some improvements to for bug fixes and some theme tweaks and stuff like that. Uh, the Linux kernel 5.4 is available by default in the standard edition, but there's also an HWE edition for Linux kernel 5.8. Uh, this has Moksha 0.3.3 version, and also they have decided to, uh, this is a thing that some distributions do, which is disable snaps by default. Uh, they haven't specified how, how they disabled it, or if they put any blocks like Mint did to getting snaps uh, activated, but uh, they did say that they disabled it. So for those who care about that, there you go. There are three editions. I already talked about two of them, the standard in the HWE or the hardware enablement uh, edition. They also have another edition called the App Pack, which is essentially the standard edition, but it also comes with a bunch of other software uh, by default. So for example, it's got LibreOffice, uh, the Genie IDE, GIMP, uh, HexChat, which is an IRC client, uh, an IM, uh, IM client that you may or may not be aware of. It's just called Pigeon. Uh, and then, because it's been around for a very long time, but it's not that well known. It's not, it used to be shipped by default all the time, not so much anymore. Also, FileZilla, uh, Audacious Audio Player, VLC Media Player, Kazam Screen Recorder, and also a note taking app called Cherry Tree is included in the app pack. They've also done some improvements to the uh, latest release of their theme for the Arc Green theme. They say that it's a major revamp. And it's now featuring an animated background, an updated splash screen, and a various numerous tweaks, including the login screen has some, had some improvements and a variety of other things. They've also talked about changing the default file manager from PCManFM to Thunar, which is an interesting choice because Thunar, Thunar is a pretty cool file manager and it's very powerful for uh, from the XFCE uh, project. Uh, though I'm not really sure why they got rid of it because PCManFM is still being developed and it's also a very good file manager. So anyway... They didn't specify exactly why, uh, but just thought it was worth noting. They also have decided to change the default web browser in Bode Linux 6.0 to Chromium instead of Firefox. Now, this part, I do have an opinion on this one. Firefox is the best browser, period, and I have a lot of reasons to, for why that is. In fact, I have a video that shows my top seven reasons of why Firefox is the best browser and my favorite browser. Uh, and there's uh, with the number one reason, obviously being container tabs, which is fantastic. I might do another update video for more favorites because I just found a new extension just a couple of days ago that is awesome. Uh, but I'll talk about that in a future video, perhaps, or maybe in the live stream. If the uh, people in live chat are curious what that is, we'll talk about it after the segment. But there you go. If you are interested in checking out Bode Linux 6.0, I'll have a link in the show notes below. And by the way, if you're not familiar, uh, Moksha Desktop is the fork of Enlightenment. I talked about that. But Enlightenment is a really interesting DE that has, a, it's kind of like a, it's not really a DE. It's also not really a window manager. It's kind of like a, a hybrid. It's kind of like in-between sort of thing. So if you've never heard of it and you've never tried it out, it might be worth checking out in uh, Bode Linux or any other distro that supports Enlightenment. If you want to check out the latest versions of Enlightenment, that sort of thing, I have links in the show notes below for Bode Linux, as well as, you know, maybe, you know, some more stuff about Enlightenment if you're interested. 
Up next in the show, and the last topic for today, is Z-Standard. So Z-Standard is a real-time compression algorithm, and we're talking about the latest release of 1.5.0 for it. So ZSTD 1.5 has some pretty impressive performance improvements. The Z-Standard 1.5 improves the middle-level compression speed, thanks to the new default match finder, improved high-level compression ratio speeds, and there's also there's also a variety of decompression speed improvements, as well as many other types of improvements can be measured, like uh, basically uh, the dynamic library now supports multi-threaded by default, which improves the speed compression, and a variety of other changes. And they said that the uh, speed improvements have been uh, measured to be uh, 10% to 25%, and even some cases, substantially more, uh, especially depending on the compression side. But the decompression side has, uh, has, seen, has also seen improvements, but not as much as on the compression side, which is pretty interesting. But the, for those who don't know, uh, ZSTD is a very important uh, package for a compression algorithm because it is uh, heavily used in a variety of different distributions now. It's been adopted by a, most distributions at this point. Uh, and it's also one of the few things, one of the very few things that Facebook has ever done that wasn't awful. <laughs> well, they also contribute to BetterFest, which is good too. So basically, this is one of the few things that Facebook has done that is good. So there's that at least. And though for, for those who didn't know it was based, uh, Facebook made it and that bothers you. Well, I mean, I understand. <laughs> anyway. If you learn more about the latest release of Z Standard, links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the skybox of the recording stadium to discuss stuff between the topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. You can also order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dealinstore.com to check it out. This is a shirt that I designed to, to have tucks blended into the background to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. And also you can check out if you want to do more stuff at the Des Destination Linux Network store. You can go to dealinstore.com and find out all sorts of stuff. There's hats, hoodies, mugs, uh, t-shirts, stickers, and even aprons. There's tons of stuff there for all the different podcasts on the Destination Linux Network. So check it out, dealinstore.com. Also, if you'd like to uh, provide some kind of support to the, for the This Week in Linux podcast, but you don't want to spend any extra money to do that, you can use the affiliate links by going to tuxedo.com slash affiliates. And there's all, all sorts of stuff there for like Amazon and private internet access and a bunch of other stuff. Check that out by going to tuxedo.com slash affiliates. And also, speaking of Destination Linux Network, check out the DestinationLinux.network because there's two other podcasts that I am a part of, uh, the Destination Linux Podcast and the Hardware Addicts Podcast. I'm a co-host of both of those shows on DLN, so check those out. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to DLNlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with the Destination Linux Network, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>